for revival, to pray for uh, racial reconciliation and kindness, uh, to pray for our president at the White House, to pray for our congressmen and women at the uh, United States Capitol. So let's continue to do that in the days ahead, uh, to pray uh, for our nation. I, I want to share just a word to encourage us to continue to be uh, careful about the coronavirus as we gather together. I know you're tired of this thing. I'm done with this, aren't you? But at the same time, we need to be careful. That I know of uh, five Southern Baptist churches in Duck River Association that did not meet last Sunday, that called off their meetings because of outbreaks among the staff or among members of coronavirus. One church I know in Tullahoma has 28 members who had the coronavirus and a worship pastor who is hospitalized uh, with it, and so they did not meet. Uh, so five churches I know, uh, uh, Rutledge Falls did not meet last week, and then four others in Tullahoma. So uh, we just we don't want to be there. Uh, we are grateful that we've not had that yet. So let's. I'm just asking you, if you feel sick, just in the least, don't come. Watch us online. Um, let's just be as careful as we can uh, in this time because we want to continue to meet together. And beyond that, of course, we do not want to cause a problem to any individual who might be vulnerable. So we're grateful for this opportunity to meet. Let's, let's be careful uh, as we continue. In that regard, next Sunday we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. Let me share with you about it a little bit. We haven't had the Lord's Supper in our church since February and we just really feel like we've got to be obedient to Christ when he said to do this in remembrance of me. On Palm Sunday, we were not meeting, and we shared a way where you could have the elements in your home, and we did it virtually online. Some of you shared in the Lord's Supper. And then in July, we just decided to push it off, and now we see we're stuck with this thing for a while. We've got to do something. We've got to have the Lord's Supper. So what we did, we got these little individual cups that have a, a wafer and a grape juice together, and did a test group with uh, our deacons and staff, and there's some problems. Number one, for some people, it's hard to get into. There's two little flaps. You've got to pull off the cellophane to get to the wafer and not pull off the other, and then pull off the other a full flap to get to the juice. And old people with bifocals and uh, people with fat fingers had a great deal of problem with this. And then the second problem was when you get that little wafer uh, out, it tastes terrible. I, you think that Lord's Supper bread we usually use is not great, I know, but uh, it tastes terrible. And people would just do this. And I thought, I'm going to look out and what a worshipful experience that's going to be when people are... <laughs> so, here's the best that we've come up with. So next Sunday, when you come, there'll be a deacon at the entrance wearing gloves and they'll have a, a little snack-sized bag there for you. And uh, you tell that deacon... Uh, they'll ask you how many in your family are going to observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for baptized believers in Jesus Christ. You have young children who have not yet confessed Christ. That's something they should wait for. It should be special. So you tell them, we got one, two, three, whatever. And they're going to hand you that number of baggies. In that baggie is a piece of the Lord's Supper bread that we usually use, a little square piece. So you can take that out. We'll give you instructions. We'll eat it together. Then there is this uh, 
little cup, and you can just rip the whole thing off, and we'll drink it together, okay? So you don't have to fool with it. And if you are real curious and want to taste the wafer, yeah, you can do that. But otherwise, we're just going to rip the whole thing off and drink the juice. Is that sort of clear there? Just want to give you a little heads up so you expect that. Uh, we need to do the body and blood of Jesus, uh, uh, our, our salvation. We want to share in the Lord's Supper, but we're not yet ready to pass that and have everybody dig around in that little bowl of bread, you know, with your hand. I know that that touching is not the main way the virus is spread, but we still just want to be respectful and careful here. So that's a little different. We've got to do things different during the virus, but we want to share in the Lord's Supper together. So be ready for that next Sunday. Hope you'll come. Uh, share with that. Tell them how many baggies you want when you come in the door, okay? All right. Thank you for sharing in that with us. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter, if you would, with me. We're today finishing a nine-week series of sermons on Second Peter. This is the last passage. We've gone verse through verse. We've read every verse in this book, and we're going to con- uh, conclude that, Lord willing, today. And chapter 3, the last part, has been about the return of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about Uh, again today. There were false teachers in Peter's day, as there are many people today who did not believe Jesus Christ was going to come back. And Peter's argument in this chapter has been, listen, God has done it before. He destroyed our world by a flood. He can do it again. There's reasonable evidence to believe that God is going to bring this thing to a close. And then the false teacher said, well, it's been so long It doesn't look like he's going to come back. And Peter responded by saying that his delay is not slowness. It is patience to give you opportunity to repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so now, Peter's going to answer the question that we see in verse 11. If we look there, since everything will be destroyed in this way, 2 Peter 3, 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question we want to talk about today. What difference should the return of Christ make in our lives? How should we act if this is true? If Jesus is really coming back again, what's the takeaway? What's the difference that it ought to make in our lives? Peter shares three things that we ought to be doing if Jesus is really coming back. I want to share them with you this morning. Number one, we should live holy and godly lives. Look at it in verse 11. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. The return of Christ is a powerful motivation to live a life of godliness and holiness. Jesus is coming back. It matters what you do with your life every day. Every day matters. Life has significance. If He's not coming back... If there's nothing beyond death, if you're just going to cease to exist, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, you may die. Life has no meaning, but if Jesus is coming back, every day has meaning and purpose. And so the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So in connection with the return of Christ, we all, even as Christians, we all Christians are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now we know there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's not a question of you're going to go to heaven or hell. We know we're going to heaven, but our lives are going to be evaluated. 
And we will receive what we've done in the body matters. Now, I don't believe our sins that have been confessed are going to be brought up. When we've sinned and we've repented and been saved, and even since we've been saved, as we've confessed our sin, John said, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I don't believe our confessed sins are going to be brought up on that judgment day. They're as far as the east is from the west. But I believe that if we're continuing to harbor sin in our lives, that unconfessed sin, that we're going to give an account for that on the, at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, and I believe that what we have done for Christ with our lives, the stewardship of our time and talents and money and, and influence will be evaluated in that time. So it matters how we live now because Jesus is coming back again. Let me read to you one other passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 talks of that evaluation uh, beginning in verse uh, 11. 1 Corinthians 3, for no one can lay any other foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's comparing you living your life to how you're building, like you're you're building. So your life is like a building. The only foundation, the only thing going to get you into heaven is faith in Jesus Christ. Then you build your life on that foundation. If anyone builds on it, verse 12, this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the Bible says that even as believers there, our lives are going to be evaluated. We all have different talents and different influence, but what have you done with what you have? What have you done with the time of your life that God has given you? Have you used it in any way for Him? Then there's going to be an evaluation. And so that evaluation, that return of Christ is a powerful motivation. It matters what you do, what you say, how you live. Live holy and godly lives. When I was a teenager, I worked one summer for a guy that I respected a lot. He owned a retail business, and he was moving into a new store. And so I was part of a group that he hired to move the fixtures, the shelving, from sort of a storage place into the new building. So we'd go get a load, take it to the new building, unload it, set it up. Then we'd go back and get another. It was a hot, hot day, one of those days we were working. And we were at that storage place where we were picking it up, and he had a cooler full of soft drinks, and we, we took a break, and we're drinking those soft drinks, which was fine. But you know, when you're a kid, time gets away from you, and we just sat there and drank and talked for a while. And finally, he wondered where we were, and he had to come back for us. And he had to come back and get us. And I, I still remember the feeling when he walked into that warehouse, and we were supposed to have been working, and we were sitting there drinking Cokes, because I, I loved that man. He was a big influence in my life. I respected him. I didn't want to disappoint him. And I didn't, I didn't want him to have to come back and say, what are, you, what are you doing, you know? I don't want when my Savior comes back. I, I don't want him to come back and say, what are you doing? I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And because Jesus is coming back, it matters what we do every day. And how we do what we do every day. And so are you living a holy and a godly life because Jesus is coming back? That's how what we ought to be doing. Second thing we ought to do, he says, in verse 12, we should look forward to the day of the Lord. 
So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 12, uh, he says there, As you look forward to the day of God. What kind of people ought we to be? You live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. So what are you looking forward to? Is there any anticipation with you of the return of Christ? Are you looking forward to graduation? Looking forward to turning 16? Looking forward to getting a car? Looking forward to getting married? Looking forward to graduating from college? Looking forward to retirement? What are you looking forward to? Our greatest anticipation ought to be for the return of Christ. Our longing for justice and for righteousness and the end of suffering and the end of cancer. Is there any of that anticipation about you for the return of Christ. Let me read to you Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Is there any eagerly awaiting His return? Oh God, this is my hope and my goal that I long for. If you say, well, I don't really think that's true of me. i tell you one reason it might be you're going to have a hope in what you've invested in. You see, if you haven't invested anything in the stock market, you're probably not now thinking about, oh, I hope that stock market goes up. But if you've got investment in the stock market, then you're hoping, oh, I hope that stock market goes up. That is your anticipation. That is what you're looking forward to. So you want to look forward to the return of Christ? You invest your life in the kingdom. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and your anticipation will follow. The early church had a word that is in Aramaic that they spoke, the early Jewish believers. Uh, Hebrew was a former language, but Aramaic was a spoken language, and there's a few Aramaic words recorded in our New Testament, and, and one of them is Maranatha. The end of 1 Corinthians 16 and the end of Revelation 22 you may find it translated in your version, or you may find it printed, Maranatha, which means, come Lord Jesus. Let me read it to you at the end, next to the last verse of the Bible, Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, I'm coming soon. Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. You hear that prayer of the early church? They were ready for an end to the persecution, for an end to suffering. And when you get in that kind of situation, you can cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus and make things right. And the Bible says that we are to live with an expectation and eagerness and anticipation of that final conclusion. The third thing that Peter says we ought to be doing, because he's really coming back, is we should speed the coming of the day of the Lord. Look at 2 Peter 3.12 again. As you look forward to the day of God and speed or hasten, it's coming. Now, what in the world does that mean? How in the world could we speed up the day of God coming? Well, we just read, remember last week, that God said the reason for His delay is that people might repent and that none might perish. And so, He's delaying His return to give as many people as possible the opportunity to have the gift of eternal life and go to heaven. And so as we share the good news and help people come into the kingdom, we speed its coming. We hasten its coming. Now I know from God's perspective, He knows He's got a day set appointed when He'll judge the world, the Bible says. He's factored in. He knows what our response is going to be. But from our perspective, 
we will hasten the day of the Lord's coming when we share the good news of Jesus. Until the full measure come in. Let me read it to you. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus said, And the gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So missions is a part of speeding the coming of the Lord. Evangelism is a part of that. And Jesus is saying, when you all get the, when you get the word to all the nations, the end is going to come. And we can speed His coming. The next verse, or still in verse uh, uh, 12 there in 2 Peter it says that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat so the judgment of God was by water at the flood at the end it's going to be by fire we don't know I don't know what that's going to look like people used to say oh it's going to be in a a nuclear bomb it's going to be bigger than that it's going to destroy the whole universe the heavens will be destroyed that is all the planets and stars and the elements will melt in the heat I looked up the melting point of the periodic table. You want to know some of them? Tin will melt at 449 degrees. So when it gets to 449, all the tin's going to melt. 621, all the lead's going to melt. 1220, all the aluminum will melt. Silver will melt at 1762. We'll lose all our gold at 1948 degrees Fahrenheit. Silicon, here's when Silicon Valley goes up. At 2570, all of your silicon stuff is gone. Uh, Platinum at 3,222 degrees Fahrenheit. And carbon, a lot of carbon on our planet, right? Carbon at 6,332 degrees. The Bible says the elements will melt in the heat. But the next verse says, verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward. You see that looking forward there? We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So after he melts this present earth, he's going to create a new universe, a new earth and new heavens. Now, theologians uh, argue about, is he going to just annihilate the old and recreate and start over? Or is he going to take the raw material of the old and refashion it into new? I favor the latter because Romans 8 says, creation is groaning with us for their redemption. And just as at our individual resurrection, he's going to take the atoms or the molecules of your body, wherever they are, and he's going to bring them back together with your DNA. I think he preserves the DNA of his creation. God doesn't lose anything. God redeems everything. God restores everything. I think he's going to restore this earth better than ever before with no fall, no sin, no cancer, no disease, but recreated in a perfect way. We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, you hear it a third time there, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. There's that admonition again. That language is from the Old Testament sacrifice. They were to get a lamb that was spotless and blemished. Don't bring your crippled, blind animals to God. For, don't bring them to church for your offering. Bring the best you've got. The best lamb out of your flock. Spotless, blameless. He says, you be like that kind of sacrifice when He comes. You give your best to God. Are you giving God your best? Are you giving to God your best every day? That's what this verse says. We're looking forward to that. So you give God the best of your life, not the leftovers of your time and leftovers of your money and the leftover of your attention, that your attention is somewhere else, but give Him the best that you may be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. 
Verse 15 reminds us again, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Oh, it hadn't happened today because He loves you and He's trying to give you a chance to repent and come to salvation. It says, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Verse 16, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of those matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I'd say amen to that, wouldn't you? Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter references Paul's writings. We see a glimpse here into the formation of the New Testament. Paul's writings are beginning to be collected together, and they are equated with Old Testament Scripture. Do you hear it here? Here's the the church recognizing the Holy Spirit in the writings of Paul and, and of Peter will come, and here's the formation of the New Testament. Peter is calling Paul's writings Scripture, but he's saying that some distort them, or the word is twist, So he's given us one more warning of these false teachers. Don't believe everybody who puts a Bible verse at the end of their statements. You look at that and test that because there will be people who will distort or twist Scripture as uh, these false teachers were doing to Paul's writings. How were they twisting them? We're not sure. Let me give you a couple of possibilities. First of all, Paul wrote, in, especially in Colossians, Colossians was a circular letter, went to other churches. This may be the one that, that he's referring to. And Paul talked about a spiritual resurrection, that we are baptized and raised. So they may have twisted that to say, see, there's not going to be any physical resurrection. Paul said baptism was the spiritual resurrection. So that's all there is. Jesus isn't coming back. That's, so they're twisting Paul's words. You get it there? And remember, Paul said in that letter that we are free. And so they probably were twisting that freedom because we know from Peter's letter that these were immoral people. You see, many people don't want to believe in the return of Christ because it would bring conviction about their immoral lifestyles. And that were these false teachers. They didn't want to believe in the return of Christ because they were living an immoral lifestyles. So they're twisting the letters of Paul, perhaps, to say, oh, but we're free, that means you can do anything you want. Grace means you can just live however you want. And they're twisting Paul's words. And Peter writes in verse 17, Dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you might not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. And the final verse sums up 2 Peter. Here's your theme verse for the letter. Title of our series has been Knowing and Growing. Verse 18 says, But grow in grace, first of all. Grace is the gift of God. How do you grow in grace? I think that you grow in grace by a growing awareness and appreciation of how much you need grace. See, sometimes you think about spiritual growth and you think about it getting stronger. And it is. I'm going to be a stronger Christian. I'm going to grow. I'm going to be a stronger Christian. That's true. But Christian growth is also an awareness of your weakness. And the most mature Christians I know know how feeble and how weak they are. They have grown in an awareness of their need for grace. And they have grown in extending grace to other people. That's growing in grace. When you become aware, I need God's grace. I haven't outgrown God's grace. I'm still a sinner. And when you become more and more aware of that, then you're more likely to extend grace to other people. Do you think we could use extending some grace to other people in our society today? Grow in 
grace. And, here's our key, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Underline it. There's the theme of of 2 Peter, that you can know God. And then you need to grow in the intimacy of knowledge of Him. So let me flip you back to the second verse in the letter. See the parallels between this last verse and the second verse in the letter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You hear how he ties it back together? It's, this letter started with grace and that by the grace of God you can know God. And it ends by saying grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Are you growing in awareness of your need for grace and extending it to others? And are you growing in your knowledge of God? I want to know Him more, know Him more deeply, and follow Him. Every story, every plot, has at least four elements. You English teachers know this. Every plot has an introduction where the characters are introduced. Every plot has rising action that involves conflict. Every plot has a climax and every plot has a resolution. Cinderella, the slipper fits. Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, Frozen. You, from any fairy tale to any romantic novel to any movie you've ever watched, it'll have those elements. Where do they come from? Where do they come from? C.S. Lewis was an English professor. He was an atheist, but he was a literature guy. He loved the stories, the myths, but he viewed the story of Jesus as just another myth. September 31st, 1939, he had a late-night conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, that ends, by the way, with the return of the king. And he said, you believe in these, you love these myths. Don't you see they're all echoes of the one true myth? They all come from something. Every plot, every time you cheer at the end of a movie, every time you close a romantic novel, there's a resolution Where does that come from? And Tolkien said to Lewis, it comes from there's one myth that's true and all these others are echoed. There's one story that's true. It's the true myth. It's the story of the Bible. The characters are introduced in the first two pages. There's a God, there's a man, there's a woman, and there's a serpent. And the action rises throughout the Old Testament with conflict. There's a flood. God starts over. There's still sin. He chooses Israel. There's still sin. There's an exile. Finally, he sends his son, and we crucify him, and the conflict reaches that climax. And then comes the climax, Easter morning, and Jesus rises from the dead. That's the climax of the story. And there is going to be a resolution to the story. So every time you watch a movie, and you watch a cowboy movie, and he rides into the sunset, or you watch a romance, and the guy kisses the girl as the moon rises behind them, or when you watch the Avengers, and they hold the Infinity Stone, or when you watch uh, Lord of the Rings, and the King Returns, whatever it is, whenever you close the page on a book, whenever you watch the end of a movie, you remember, these are echoes of the one true story. And it, too, will have 
a resolution. And the God who created it and brought it to a climax is bringing it to a close. Jesus Christ is coming back again. And all things will be made right. And that is our hope. And until then, let us live holy and godly lives. Let us look forward to His coming. And let us speed the day by sharing our faith with those around us. Would you stand together? I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to sing, and then have a concluding prayer. Today, do you see that God loves you, and He holds off the resolution of His story to give you opportunity to repent? Would you put your faith in Jesus? Would you believe this story? If so, would you say a prayer right now where you stand? Jesus, I believe that. I receive that. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to be ready when you return. And if you're a believer, would you, would you confess any sin? Would you say, God, I, I'm not living a holy life. I need to confess that. God, I've not been, it's not been my priority. I've not been eagerly anticipating and looking for a Savior from heaven. God, I've not been doing my part to share the good news, and I want to confess that today. May we be able to say as we leave this place, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. God bless you. If you want to come and talk with me, I'll be at the Welcome Center. You can pray to receive Christ, or I'll rejoice with you. You can be baptized. Uh, We'll make plans for that. You can join our church by letter or statement. Stop by and see me there on the way out. God bless you. Amen.